0: Welcome to the Left Hand Church Podcast. My name's Paula Stone-Williams, and I'm one of the co-pastors here. We're so glad that you're with us. We love having you join us here at Left Hand, and we would love it if you would join us in a financial way as well. You can text any amount to 84321, and we'll receive it. You also can go to our website, lefthandchurch.org, and you can find out there how you can donate. Every time we begin a service, we begin with these words. Married, divorced, and single here, it's one family that mingles here. Conservative and liberal here, we've all got to give a little here. Big and small here, there's room for us all here. Doubt and belief here, we all can receive here. LGBTQ and straight here, there is no hate here. Woman, non-binary, and man here, everyone can here. Whatever your race here, for all of us, grace. In imitation of the ridiculous love Almighty God has for each of us and all of us, let us live and love without labels. I worked in television for about 18 years and while I was in television I had the chance to spend a little bit of time with Bart Gavigan. Now Bart Gavigan is a movie script doctor and based on what his house looks like he does quite well as a movie script doctor. Hollywood studios come to him when a script just isn't working and they've already committed to it. And I asked him what the most common issue is in movie scripts that don't work, and he said too often, the writers of movies, the directors and producers of movies do not understand a basic truth about human nature. Humans are a moral species. We will always be a moral species. We've always been a moral species. So you have someone walk into the movie theater. He said, they maybe in real life just robbed a bank. But in that movie, they want the hero to do the right thing. They want the hero to make the right decision because the audience, he says, is always moral. So we've talked before around here about the three different moral standards from which our species functions and going to need to talk about it again tonight because it relates directly to the passage we're going to be looking at. The first and oldest moral standard among the three is that there is no greater moral good than to protect the integrity of the tribe. This is the moral standard that developed when we move from being a blood kin species to primarily a tribal species. And so you willingly give up your personal freedom for the sake of the tribe. There's no greater moral good than to protect the integrity of the tribe, which also means to listen to the leaders of the tribe. That is the oldest, most ancient moral standard. There's a second moral standard, also very, very old, that there is no greater moral good than to obey the teachings of the gods. And this is the moral standard of all forms of religious fundamentalism, wherever you find it. The most common and obvious forms of it are the three fundamentalist expressions of the desert religions. Christianity, Islam, Judaism, the Abrahamic religions began as desert religions. Therefore, they started as religions of scarcity. Not enough to go around. Got to take care of me and mine. And in their fundamentalist forms, they remain religions of scarcity. So in those religions, there's no greater moral good than to obey the teachings of the gods. Often these two moral standards overlap. So if you take a look at the Middle East particularly at fundamentalist Islam you find that there's no greater moral good than to obey the teachings of the gods But also no greater moral good than to obey the leaders of your tribe Whether it's the Shiites or the Sunnis because for the Shiites all the Sunnis are bad for the Sunnis all the Shiites are bad So you have the combination of these two that create very strong loyalties You see it also in fundamentalist Christianity. You have fundamentalist Catholics. You have fundamentalist Protestants also Tribal responsibilities that are held in addition to obeying the teachings of the gods. I've got to be true to my tribe So both of these moral standards But there's no greater moral good than to protect the integrity of the tribe And there's no greater moral good than to obey the teachings of the gods are what are called power Meta-narratives Now a meta-narrative is a big giant story that explains the meaning of life meta-narrative And so these first two moral standards gave birth to meta-narratives that are power-based meta-narratives. Now what that means is, if your moral standard is there's no greater moral good than protecting the integrity of your tribe, and it's a power narrative, then your tribe becomes the most pure tribe on the face of the earth. That's how you get the Holocaust. Because in Germany, the tribal loyalty demanded that they respect that the most power should lie in the hands of the most pure race, the Aryan nation. And it's amazing that even in the 20th century, we could see that kind of abuse of power from a power meta-narrative. You see it today, here in the United States, you've seen it in the last week. A large segment of the American population that we do not want to recognize is there, but is there, says that we are, in fact, a European white nation and that Manifest Destiny, the notion that we're supposed to have control over this nation, is ours from God, not concerned about those who were here for thousands of years before us. Also, a power narrative. I mean, take a look at the moral standard that says there's no greater moral good than to obey the teachings of the gods. Also power narratives. There's the Islamic power narrative that says all religions except Islam are wrong. There's the Christian power narrative that says every religion except Christianity is wrong. These are power meta narratives with power meta narratives. The victor decides what history is and the victor sets the rules. That's just the way it is. But also within power narratives, there's an even more complicated thing taking place. It's what René Girard, in his book Violence and the Sacred, calls mimetic theory. Now in mimetic theory, he's been studying, or at least the late uh, René Girard, who passed away a couple of years ago, he studied for decades how those in power remained in power. And found out from the earliest days of history, those in power discovered that the best way to remain in power was to in fact decide that there were scapegoats within the system that were dangerous and only I the person in power can identify. That was the perspective. That I am the only one with the unique ability to identify the awful terrible people who are are among us. And so you need to leave me in a position of power because I'm the only one who can actually save us. I'm the only one who sees where the problems lie. That's how you get a governor who says, "This is where woke came to die." That's how you get a governor who says, "Don't say "gay." And invariably, in power meta-narratives, the scapegoats chosen are the weakest people of the entire culture. Hence, trans kids today, 0.58% of the population, with a higher suicide completion rate by 13 times over any other DSM-5 diagnosis. That is the chosen scapegoat. They are the ones who will destroy our culture if we do not stop them, and only we, those in power, are able to stop them. And so, within these two power meta narratives, these two moral standards, you find those in power who've decided the best way to remain in power is to say, I alone can fix this. But that leaves out the third moral standard. The third moral standard is the standard that says there's no greater moral good than to protect the freedom of the individual. It is the youngest of the three moral standards, it is the most geographically limited of the three moral standards. It is unique to the Western world. It is, in fact, the moral standard of all of Europe, particularly Western Europe and Northern Europe. It's the moral standard of secular United States, particularly the Northeast and the Pacific Northwest. It's the moral standard of Canada, New Zealand, Australia. It is the moral standard of most of the West. Now, what is it that separates Western culture from all other cultures? Only one thing. Separates the West from the rest of the world It's Christian foundations That is in fact what defines Western civilization is the story of Jesus So in fact this third moral standard Exists because that moral standard grew up out of the teachings of Jesus now It's ironic because most who hold to that moral standard no longer would identify themselves as Christian It's just the memory of the Christian culture that has caused them to hold on to that standard that says there is no greater moral good than to protect the freedom of the individual. But there's only one one culture that has taught that and it is in fact the message of Jesus. Now just one more thing. So René Girard doing all this work on nomadic theory what causes people to grab power and hang on to power, said of all the power narratives that existed in the history of mankind, there is one meta-narrative that is not a power meta-narrative. There's one single big giant story that explains the meaning of life that does not begin, grow out of, end or focus on power. It is, in fact, a meta-narrative focused on the scapegoat. It's a meta-narrative focused on the victim. It's a meta-narrative that begins and ends focused on the oppressed. It is the meta-narrative of Jesus of Nazareth. He kept trying to find a way around this, but he finally came to the conclusion that there was something significantly different about the person of Jesus. And René Girard, who considered himself to be an atheist, ended up being a follower of Jesus, not believing Jesus was the Son of God, but believing that Jesus gave us the meta narrative that was worth following. The meta narrative that said, The last shall be first and the first shall be last. The meta narrative that said, The victim is the one on whom we should focus our attention. The oppressed are the ones we should see. Some people will say to us here at Left Hand, you guys seem to be open to all religions. Why aren't you just Unitarian Universalist? And when the day is done, it is because of the person of Jesus. That is what sets us apart. We are a Christian church because we believe the narrative and meta-narrative of Jesus is in fact a meta-narrative worth staking your life on. That there is no greater moral good than to protect the freedom of the individual. And the best way to do that is by loving God, loving neighbor, which includes your enemy, and loving yourself. And so the entire story of Jesus, beginning in a humble way, is for us the focal point of our meta-narrative. This is not a king born in a castle. This is a guy who grew up with the family that lived in Nazareth. And Nazareth was to Jerusalem what lions is to Denver. But that wasn't where he was born. No, they had to leave and go to Bethlehem. Bethlehem was to Nazareth what ward is to lions. So basically, Jesus was born in ward. And who was there to see the birth? Shepherds. The most lowly profession in the eyes of the first century of all professions out there, it's shepherds who showed up. And so on the eighth day, Joseph and Mary took their son into the temple, which was their responsibility as Jewish people. The temple had been destroyed in 586, rebuilt shortly thereafter. Those who were reading the Gospel of Luke knew it would be destroyed again by 70 AD. But going to the temple in Jerusalem is what Jewish people did. And they brought an offering with them. The offering they brought with them was the offering of peasants, of people with no cultural standing. It was two turtle doves. And so they arrive with two turtle doves to consecrate Jesus in service to God, which Jews had been doing with their firstborn son since the time of the Passover. Since the angel of death had passed over the Jewish homes and saved the firstborn sons, from that point on, the Jewish people would always dedicate their firstborn sons to God. And so that is the environment taking place when these people come from Ward into Denver and go to the temple where they are greeted by Simeon. Let's pick it up in the second chapter of Luke. Simeon had been told that the Messiah was coming, that the Messiah was at hand, and that he would not die until he had met the Messiah. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. In other words, I can die. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So this man who's been told that before he dies he will meet the Messiah, what does he say to them about the Messiah? Does he say, this Messiah will gather together an army that will defeat the Romans? Nope. Does he say, this Messiah will become the political king who will take care of all the people? Nope. He says, this Messiah will look into the hearts of people, and will take some high, and will take others low. And if you really look into the depth of that particular phrase, in the same human being, if you decide to follow this particular person, this person will take you high, this person will take you low. This person will take you into the depths of your own weaknesses. This person will cause you to see the possibilities in yourself that no one else has ever seen. It will take you from one end to the other, and you cannot be taken from one end to the other unless you know you are loved. You cannot be open to truly seeing your weakest weaknesses, your strongest weaknesses, unless you know you are loved and you cannot be propelled to the greatest heights unless you know you are loved. So he doesn't say he's coming to create a power meta narrative. He's coming to help you see the depths of your own soul. So then who else shows up? One of the most powerful women in all of the Roman Empire? Well, let's see what it says. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, Of the tribe of Asher, she was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So who are the people who recognize this child of God when the child arrives? An old man and an old widow. Because that's the way it is with the message of Jesus. So, this last election cycle, I was terrified. I really was frightened for our nation. When people like Michael Beschloss and John Meacham are saying we might lose our democracy, I thought we might lose our democracy. But then People showed up at the the droves at, at, at the polls, and why did they show up at the polls? Did they show up at the polls because of their concern for immigration? No. Did they show up at the polls because of their concerns about inflation? No. They showed up at the polls because of their concern about democracy. The common people. The ones who would show up at the temple with two turtle doves. The ones from Ward showed up at the polls and voted for democracy. Because they believe in the moral standard that says there is no greater moral good than to protect the freedom of the individual. They believed in the moral standard that was established by the scapegoat named Jesus. And I woke up the next morning... And for the first time in a long time, I had hope. I woke up thinking of the little poem of Emily Dickinson. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and changing the world by showing us that the last shall be first and the first shall be last, by by being the victim who triumphs, by being the scapegoat who loves his enemies. May we find hope from that infant from the wrong side of the tracks during this season. May we find hope in the narrative that says, loving God, loving neighbor, and loving self is how we change the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is John Gaddis. I'm one of the co-pastors here at Left Hand Church. As you listen to this teaching, we hope it was a reminder that the love of God is bigger, more inclusive, and filled with more grace than any of us can imagine. There is truly room for us all here. If you have any questions about Left Hand Church or this teaching, please email me at john at lefthandchurch.org. You can also tune into our live stream services on our church Facebook page every Sunday at 5 p.m. Mountain for great music and original teachings. Thank you for joining us.